This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, well, it's certainly uh, a movable feast, I think, with class actions. And I think we have had the tide swing in favor of claimants or plaintiffs and now i sense that the tide is swinging back that was jonathan armstrong i'm tom fox and we are the duo of life with gdpr if you haven't checked out the trial of the century the enron trial podcast on the compliance podcast network i hope you will check it out this podcast series focuses on the Enron trial, not the collapse of Enron, and I have guest Lauren Steffi, who actually covered the trial. So it's some great insight. Also, it draws a direct line to corporate governance and ESG. In today's episode of Life with GDPR, Jonathan Armstrong and I take a look at class actions in the United Kingdom and the EU around data privacy and data breaches. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode of Life with GDPR. Uh, And in this episode, we are going to move into one of my favorite areas to completely geek out, which, of course, is class action litigations. Uh, In addition to Colonel Sanders and perhaps Starbucks, it's one of the three greatest exports to the United Kingdom from the United States, uh, showing that we can send both the best and perhaps the not best of America, and it'd be fully embraced in the United Kingdom. So, Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks very much, Tom, and thank you for your kind gifts. (laughs) So, Jonathan, uh, I thought it would be uh, really uh, helpful uh, to maybe just have a a podcast on the current state of class action. This is something that you and I have touched on over the past couple of years. In our previous podcast with Blackboard, uh, we certainly talked about ongoing litigation But what are uh, really some of the developments you have seen legally around class actions? Because we've had some legal rulings. And then how has that impacted both investigations and uh, ongoing reporting that you have seen as well? Yeah, well, it's certainly uh, a movable feast, I think, with class actions. And I think we have had the tide swing in favor of claimants or plaintiffs. And now I sense that the tide is swinging back in favor or at least becoming more balanced uh, and looking at the interests of defendants. And you're right that a lot of this has been imported from the U.S. And indeed, in some cases, we have had U.S. law firms set up on U.K. soil or German soil to try and exploit class actions over here. And we've also had, and I think the pandemic's partly been a cause for this, we've also had uh, accident lawyers, road traffic lawyers, slip and trip lawyers decide that data breach is more profitable for them, possibly because people have been having less accidents whilst they've been on lockdown. And so in the UK, for example, we've seen a rise. And class actions are still different from the American system. Uh, 
But we've also had cases in Germany and in the Netherlands that look a bit like class actions or group actions, although the structure of them might be different. In the Netherlands, for example, that might be through a, a stichting, a, a particular association that's formed to bring the litigation. But there have been some big prizes. Uh, the British Airways uh, data breach case, for example, it, it is rumoured has been settled for some millions of dollars. And we have had cases which at least implied that even relatively trivial data breaches led to a payment of £750 per head. Now, this might not sound huge, but when you multiply that by 40,000 or 60,000 claimants, then you get to a big number. And we've had other cases that have got beyond that £750 rule of thumb in some, for example, where there's been more demonstrable harm and distress. We've had damages of up to £85,000. And I think in an earlier podcast, we talked about the Katie Price litigation, for example, where there were uh, substantial damages after a data breach. But I think in the last few months, as I said, we've seen that tide turning slightly. We haven't seen any let-up in the amount of claims across our desk. And some of those claims have merits. Others, I don't think, do. So, Jonathan, one of the defining features of class actions in America is, number one, actual damage. And number two, that the class has a same or similar type of damage. And it struck me in reading some of the rulings, and I can't recall if it was in a quarterly client alert or other legal commentary from the United Kingdom, that there was a ruling recently or in the past few months that there had to be actual damage if there was a data breach that, um, am I remembering that correctly? And is that now a threshold uh, requirement in a class action? Yeah, I think you are right. And it probably was our alert on the Lloyd and Google case. And I think it's important, as I said earlier, to say that the tide uh, is turning somewhat. And I think there have been more uh, defendant-friendly judgments from the court recently, both here and in Germany. And the uh, Lloyd and Google case is one where the courts, uh, and it's the Supreme Court here, have looked more forensically at who is in the class. And of course, in a data breach, it isn't the case that it's guaranteed that everybody has suffered the same harm. You know, if it's an e-commerce site, for example, you might find that some people have had their name exposed, <coughs> excuse me, some people their name and address, but for others it might be their um, credit card details. So it's often the case that the harm to people affected is unequal. And in some cases, people haven't suffered any harm at all. And here we've had some good, uh, helpful 
judgments, I think, from some of the lower courts. There's a case called uh, Rolf versus Veal Wandsborough, for example. This case concerns a uh, law firm that were chasing uh, debts on behalf of a school, and those people who had suffered from the data breach said that it had made them feel ill. One of them was an IT manager, and the master, the sort of lower-level judge, effectively told him to be more robust. It said that uh, damages would be assessed effectively on the basis of a person of reasonable fortitude in the 21st century, and that if he couldn't prove harm or distress or produce a medical report, then the case would be uh, struck out. So here, the court ordered that the claimants meet the defendant's costs of defending the case, and they had to make an interim payment of £15,000. We had a somewhat similar case, for those who want to look it up, Johnson and Eastlight. And this was a case where uh, accidentally, and we've all seen this type of data breach, a, a spreadsheet was sent to the wrong person. The spreadsheet was just under 7,000 pages long, and it showed rent details of a, a housing association. The claimant appeared on pages 880 to 882. The email was deleted the same day, and there was no evidence that people had accessed the spreadsheet and got information out of it. The Housing Association reported the incident to the ICO, and yet the uh, claimant still brought a claim, and they tried to bring that in one of the higher courts. The claim was only worth, on their valuation, it seems, £3,000, and they effectively said that they were going to spend £50,000 bringing the case. And this possibly highlights another area where we have had trouble. In the UK, you can buy after the event insurance, so you can effectively buy an insurance policy that enables you to bring the case on a no-win-no-fee basis. And that's why I think we've seen a real rise in these claims, because they've got lawyers willing to bring it on a no-win-no-fee basis and insurers backing these cases as well. Helpfully, in some of these cases, the courts have also suggested that insurers might have to bear the downside as well as the upside. So there could be a case when an insurer has to pick up damages for funding a case that should never have been brought. But you're right that in many of these cases, it's hard to prove distress. We have seen frankly, ridiculous medical reports that have been sent to us in connection with claims that we're defending, that people have said, you know, the fear of my data possibly being seen by somebody else has led me to never be able to sleep, to have anxiety, etc., etc. And uh, to be really candid, Tom, I think some of the clinicians that are producing those reports do need to have a good look 
at themselves and be more curious, I think, about some of the claims that claimants uh, supported by uh, lawyers are, are, are making. So I think it is a difficult situation at this time, and I would say this, wouldn't I? I think if you have had a data breach, you've always got to be alive to the prospect of potential litigation, and you've got to prepare for that, and that will be taking good advice early, it will be treating claims seriously, it will be in jurisdictions like the UK looking at the pre-action protocol, so a standards of conduct that we expect from uh, claimant law firms bringing uh, actions, and it will be looking hard at after-the-event insurance, which is available for some types of these claims, but not for others. So there is a need, I think, for people to be aware of this uh, increased litigation risk over the last 12 months or so. Jonathan, let me take that last point and expand it just a little bit. How do you either advise clients or you as outside counsel help think through uh, a case similar to Blackboard, where you may have ongoing litigation, class action litigation, but you also have open investigations literally across the world from Australia to England, all points in between, 44 attorneys general in the United States, so that you have an ongoing civil litigation where you have to respond to discovery. And then there's ongoing uh, regulatory investigation as well. How, how do you balance those two, or is that just uh, part of the cost of having a data breach? Well, I think you have got to manage it all carefully. I mean, obviously, you've got to be transparent and open with regulators, and that's your responsibility under GDPR or Australian uh, legislation or wherever that may be. You are going to want to look properly at privilege. We see as a matter of routine people make subject access requests to try and get information almost as pre-action discovery for free. So you've got to have a strategy for dealing with those. And obviously, many plaintiffs or claimants will try and get hold of the forensic investigatory report. And that's the subject of lots of litigation in the US, uh, particularly some litigation, some argument over here. And usually, the best course is for external counsel to lead the investigation and for uh, external counsel to hire forensic specialists or whoever may be needed to help them with that investigation and work out what's happened. But of course, in ransomware, you're often dealing with great uncertainties. Oftentimes, the only person who truly knows how much data they have taken is the criminal. In many cases, it is hard to prove exfiltration, certainly in the early days of an incident. But from our experience, more often than not, data is taken. The modern ransomware criminal 
takes data because that's his or her way of extracting a payment. People don't pay just because you tell them that you've taken data. Normally, you expect to see proof. It's a little bit like the old-fashioned hostage situation where it was the, what's uh, euphemistically called the proof-of-life video, the film that the uh, hostage takers would send to prove that they had the individual in their possession and that that individual was still alive. Ex data exfiltration is the equivalent of the proof-of-life video. And so most ransomware gangs that know what they're doing do take data. But it's hard to prove that initially. And so for most organizations, I think they will need a team that's been round the block before, that know what these attacks look like, and can maybe get hold of other data. So, for example, sometimes we've looked at traffic spike data so that we can get an indication of whether there was exfiltration and, if so, to what degree, because we can look at network traffic even if the servers are locked down and won't give us any meaningful data. So I think whenever you have a data breach, you've got at least two responsibilities. One is obviously to try and minimize the attack and try and prevent it midstream if you can, as Blackboard said uh, they uh, did successfully, or at least to limit the harm. And secondly, I think you've got to try and look after the personal data, try and protect that as much as you can, tell the victims if they are at risk. So, for example, we've had cases which remind organizations that if there is a likely risk of identity theft, then they're probably going to have to tell uh, the uh, customers uh, affected or the employees affected. But thirdly, I think you've also got to have an eye on the litigation as well and look at how you can get the right evidence together to defeat these claims when they start and arrive. And the one thing I would say is that the timelines for all of this have become much more compressed. If you look at the BA data breach, for example, I believe that there were lawyers who were saying they were on the scene within 48 hours of the breach becoming public. Law firms are monitoring things like uh, blogs from uh, security researchers who are monitoring the dark web for breaches. So the attack team will be up and running very quickly. You've obviously got regulatory obligations, 72 hours in most cases under GDPR. So you'll need to be organized in 24, 48 hours to get ready for your regulatory reports and to get ready for those claim notices coming in. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I certainly read the, I think it was the Google case, but the UK case, which I thought maybe restricted class actions a little bit by requiring what I would call an injury, I think you call distress. Are you seeing any litigation out of uh, the EU which gives you pause one way or the another on the expansion of class actions? There are various moves at an EU level to expand class actions. So there, um, at the moment, litigation is dealt with on a country-by-country basis, and each country in the EU has its own rules. Increasingly, the rights to compensation are being looked at on an EU-wide basis, and GDPR is one example of that. But there are also moves across the EU to try and have some sort of harmonised system for bringing class actions. Now, uh, Max Schrems, who we've talked about on this podcast many times, he did bring what's properly called Schrems 2, so the second case after uh, Safe Harbor was struck down, uh, he, he brought a case uh, from uh, as a result of the Schrems 1 case to try and get damages for individuals. <clears throat> that litigation is still rumbling through Europe. There have been setbacks at an ECJ level, but again, the litigation is running through uh, Austria. Most of the cases don't say you can't bring class actions, but they do say that they have to be on an opt-in basis and not an opt-out basis. So that's maybe a difference from the US uh, rules. And that does, of course, go to the economics of litigation because the class will be smaller as a result. But we are seeing these cases still be brought. And those people who said that Lloyd and Google would see the end of class actions because they weren't economic to bring unless they're on an opt-out basis have clearly been shown to be wrong. You know, there's a threatened class action against the Police Federation this week in the UK, which is on uh, on a pure opt-in basis. So... I think class actions are here to stay. I think they're definitely going to be a feature of the litigation landscape across the EU and not just in the UK. Here in the United States, much of the litigation around this issue, (laughs) because there's no US law, federal law around data privacy and data protection, um, is litigation against boards of directors. So shareholder actions for boards uh, basically not doing anything around cybersecurity issues. Are you seeing any actions, civil actions, against boards of directors in either the UK or the EU? That's a great question. I personally have not seen one. I have seen threatened litigation against chief privacy officers uh, and effectively saying that they haven't... uh, exercised their responsibilities assiduously. I've seen criticism of a board of directors 
in one case in the UK, but I'm not sure that that's translated into litigation. I think we will see what I might call Delaware-style class actions against boards saying that the business, the value of the business was reduced because they didn't handle a data breach well enough and or they permitted a data breach and that's led to a diminution in value for shareholders. So I think we will see shareholder class actions on the back of a data breach. Obviously, in the last uh, few days, we've had a similar um, style uh, class action threatened against uh, Airbus in the Netherlands over its failure to deal with bribery issues. And I would expect that we'd see carbon copy type litigation against uh, boards of directors by shareholders for that diminution in value after a data breach. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye on uh, that, and uh, it may be that we need to continually evaluate the status of class actions going forward. So I look forward to continuing this conversation, Jonathan. My pleasure. Thanks again, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Life with GDPR, and I hope you'll join Jonathan Armstrong and myself again on this podcast series. I hope you will check out the latest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Presidential Leadership Lessons for Today's Business Leader, which has premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. Also check out Design Thinking in Compliance, where Karsten Tams and myself continue our exploration of how you can use the social engineering tool of design thinking to increase the engagement and effectiveness of your compliance program. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.